The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Find out more about the network and other amazing Alberta-made podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornway. And I'm Ryan Hastman. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're also joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart, and we're recording this episode on May 27th, 2018. This episode, we are going to talk about pipelines. Ah, we haven't done that in a long time. I feel like we don't talk enough about pipelines on Mm -hmm. this podcast or in Alberta politics. So we're going to talk about pipelines and how Alberta's political leaders are positioning themselves ahead of the Kinder Morgan Corporation's imposed May 31st deadline, which is fast approaching. We'll talk about the Ontario provincial election and share predictions about who will win. Will it be Ford Nation? Will it be an orange sweep or maybe a liberal comeback? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) More like Kathleen lose. (laughs) (laughs) More on that soon. Ryan will share some great advice in our regular So You Want to Be a Candidate segment. Uh, But before all that, let's, uh, let's delve into some nomination news and political gossip. I have to point out that this weekend marks the one-year anniversary of the federal Conservative Party leader, Andrew Scheer, becoming leader. And I also have some news and a congratulations to a good friend of mine, uh, Brock Harrison, who it was announced on Friday, is moving to Ottawa for an adventure as uh, Andrew Scheer's new Director of Communications at the OLO. Wow. Congratulations, Brock. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Good good, good luck, but but not... Too much good luck? Well, I say full-throated good luck. <laughs> He's moving to Ottawa, the most boring major city in Canada. Well, was it, wasn't it? I think I, I, I might get this wrong, but I think it was Mark Lalonde who said that Ottawa is still proof that, or Ottawa is proof that Canada still has capital punishment. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they've got some great museums out there. I'll give them that. When I lived in Ottawa, so Brock and I are, we've been friends. Our grandparents are friends. Our parents are friends. We've known each other forever, but we both lived in Ontario at the same time. And he was living in Kingston, working at the Whig Standard as a reporter. And I was in Ottawa. And of course, neither of us were married or anything. And so he was up in Ottawa all the time, just hanging out, eating shawarma, playing video games. So I think Sue, his wife, might be a little concerned that that's the lifestyle he's looking to rebuild there. But uh, I don't think it'll be quite the same. Well, there's literally nothing else to do there. So I think that might be what he does is regress. <laughs> Ottawa just, is beautiful. And it is, yeah. In the shawarma spring, and politics. <laughs> oh, shawarma and politics is as good as it gets. But Ottawa, is particularly in May and June, I remember, it was just so nice. They have an extra month on either side of winter that Edmonton doesn't get. They actually have shoulder seasons. They actually have 13 months in Ottawa. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have four seasons. <laughs> 13 months, 13 grades, yeah. like whatever. <laughs> they got rid of OAS, actually. They don't have the grade 13 anymore. Leanne took it, but we digress. Back closer to home, talking about Alberta provincial politics, on the United Conservative side, several nominations are now open. Uh, The best place to track that, of course, is Dave's site, daveberta.ca, where he maintains it with rigor and thoroughness and no funding at all. So for everyone out there who sends tips, thanks. Keep them coming to Dave, and I'm sure he'll update as soon as he can. Expected to come soon are two by-elections. Uh, that need to be held before the end of 2018, and the NDP have now nominated candidates in both those uh, both those districts in Innisfil, Sylvan Lake, and in Fort McMurray, Conklin, uh, which suggests that the uh, the governing party is getting ready to quickly call a by election soon. Hold on, you said nominated. You mean 
chose from the leader's office down in a top-down uh, style. Well, they 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 nominated. They were uncontested nominations, so you could say they were acclamations. But there was still there was they still had to hold a meeting and nominate them. So they probably like played spin the bottle or something, and whoever caught the bottle had to run. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know about uh, in in one of the districts, but maybe in maybe in one of them. Uh, in uh, in Fort McMurray Conklin, I think the NDP have actually attracted a pretty decent candidate in uh, Jane Stroud, who's a, a municipal councillor in Wood Buffalo. Actually, a pretty good candidate. Uh, in Innisfil, Sylvan Lake, they've just nominated uh, Nicole Mooney, who's a teacher. In she lives in Sylvan Lake. She's a teacher in Red Deer, uh, involved with the Alberta Teachers Association local at the the uh, I think it's the Catholic high school in Red Deer. But Innisfil, Sylvan Lake is such a strong conservative riding that it's I don't I think the NDP know they don't really have a shot in they don't really have a shot in Innisfil, Sylvan Lake. I'm not totally convinced they have a shot in Fort McMurray Conklin, but I think they could actually place actually could do okay with a high name with a good name candidate like jane stroud um the ndp have been one thing i've been noticing uh i'm on i think i'm on at this point i'm on every party's fundraising email lists and uh the ndp have been sending i think they sent out two or three two or three emails in the past two weeks about saying there's a by-election around the corner we don't know when it's going to be called it's going to be called soon you know donate so we could so we could so to, to help us win and it's just kind of funny the governing party sending out you know, fundraising letters saying that a by-election will be called soon. Could when, be. when when we, they control they control when it gets called. Yeah, well, I'm not going to say when. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, one of the things that's funny about the Fort McMurray Conklin by-election is that riding. Of course, of course, these by-elections are being contested yeah. under the current riding yep. boundaries, but that one really dramatically changes um, yeah. for the next election. So, whoever the MLA is, and even the candidates in the riding associations, they're operating under this current border that really won't exist yeah so it's kind of an odd situation i think innisfail sylvan lake doesn't change very much it, it changes like slightly like there's one like rural road that moves over i think they move slightly move west on in in the in the bottom southwest corner of innisfail sylvan lake i actually compared the two maps and it's like i don't think i think there may be three people who live in that uh, in that quarter section that uh, that now moves over uh but you're right uh, Fort McMurray Conklin will become a Fort McMurray Lac, Fort McMurray Lac Labiche after the uh, after the ne- when the next election general election is called, yeah. and that'll drastically change the uh, the boundaries there. It'll be, it's kind of similar to a few years ago when when Brian Jean resigned from federal politics. They had a by election in the federal Fort McMurray riding that he represented. I think it was called Fort McMurray Athabasca, and then a couple years later, a year later, when the 2015 federal election was called, they changed the boundaries and it became Fort McMurray Cold Lake. So it was quite a big quite a big change in terms of of where the the where the mla or where, where the candidates had to run in in you know in 2014 and then had to run in 2015 it'll be a big difference uh between 2018 and 2019 in fort mcmurray conklin and fort mcmurray lac so it's unavoidable but uh it's something we have to talk about it's the trans mountain pipeline discussion there's a as dave mentioned at the top of the show a big deadline looming may 31st is when kinder morgan has said they either uh, shit or get off the pot, I guess. The premier came out last week with a big press conference saying she wouldn't be hanging out with the other premiers because she needed to work on this. What was your guys' reaction to that? I think Notley would have had a hard time going to that uh, going to that conference and not having the focus been solely on pipelines or the or the major focus on pipelines. It really does. I mean, there 
the premiers have a lot of issues they can talk about. Um, I mean, they didn't, I don't even think they even really talked about pipelines at this conference. Um, so there are issues that the provinces are working on together and moving forward. Uh, so in, in that point, in that case, I don't think it was probably that helpful that Notley was gone. Cause I think they probably could have moved forward on, on, on other issues. Pharmacare is one, one of the big issues that the Alberta government and the federal government has been focusing on that, that they could have moved forward on. Uh, but, it, I think it would have been very difficult to to do that politically with this pipeline kind of this pipeline thing hanging over everybody's everybody's head, and it would have been the first question the media asked, and it would have been it would have been politically challenging to have Rachel Notley and John Horgan working on other issues together, be seen to work on other issues together when they can't seem to figure out this pipeline issue, and that's the yeah. dominant issue here in Alberta right now. Well, this is no doubt my favorite NDP quote of all time. But, you know, her statement that it would be surreal and exceptionally tone deaf for anyone to think that we could politely discuss pharmacare and cannabis when one of the players is hard at work trying to choke the economic lifeblood of the province and the country. I think that's perfect. Now, I was saying to Adam before we started today, maybe I love it because she's trying to out UCP the UCP. Like, I am a certain target market. But I think it's true. How can you go to a meeting and talk about a bunch of side issues when something that's existential for i would say the whole canadian economy but certainly for her province um i found it a very good statement i thought she was really strong now is is the fact that i like what she's saying maybe actually a problem for her i don't know we've talked about a few times can she can she just wrap the big tent all the way around the entire elector alberta electorate and just get us all on board this morning watching ctv news the sunday morning show um, they had Avi Lewis on and a few others, and he was making statements. And I felt my immediate reaction was to feel defensive of, of her. And then I'm like, well, wait a second. This is the Edmonton Strathcona NDP I'm talking about. Like, what is happening to me? But I was just, you know, she has captured something for sure. I was just going to say what's interesting is you, Dave, had shared a link to a blog uh, yeah. that really nicely covers the way successful premiers behave, they position themselves mm-hmm. as saviors. The, and, the guardian role, yeah, especially yeah, in Alberta, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the blog post, Jared Wesley, who's an associate professor of political science at the U of A, wrote a quite, quite a smart blog post uh, on his blog about outlining the, the, the kind of the guardian role that successful political leaders play in Alberta politics. Uh, and he talked about, you know, in, in terms of Peter Lougheed and Ralph Klein and being the, the kind of the guardian of Alberta. And, and he was talking about how, uh, how both, well, he's talking about, he was talking specifically about Jason Kenney and how Jason Kenney is trying to position, position himself as the guardian in the, in the guardian role. But, uh, but, but, he wrote, was wrote um, uh, Wesley wrote in his post that it's not quite clear who's going to succeed, the, who's going to be the most successful because Rachel Notley is also positioning herself as the, as the guardian of as the guardian of Alberta. So it's kind of a competition between the two of them to see who can be, you know, who can be the strongest guardian of the province of Alberta in that kind of political role. And I just, I just in terms of of his argument that Kenny is positioning himself in in the guardian role, I thought it was. I'm just going to kind of run through his his three key arguments, and I, I encourage you to check out the check out his blog. It's I pracademic at or dot blog blogspot.com and I'll put a link to it on on the um on the blog on the Dayberta blog post that goes with this uh, podcast but he lists uh, on first count Kenny is likely the only provincial opposition leader ever to apply for intervener status 
uh, in support of a constitutional challenge of another province. Uh, Kenny returned to Parliament Hill to speak to the Commons Finance Committee, and Kenny he go and this is we'll talk a little bit about this. Uh, goaded the federal government into breaking the uh, a related rule of intergovernmental relations by engaging a provincial opposition leader by name. And I mean, this is goes. To, I mean, this really goes back to Kenny being a federal politician in provincial politics in Alberta, and he, he I think he's you know I think he's successfully working you know and working to to position himself as as in that that guardian role um but i'm not quite sure who's gonna who's gonna win if it's gonna be him or notley in terms because i think they're both working quite hard to position themselves that way yeah that's fascinating there certainly is a playbook and in in every province it works you know ottawa is the bad guy but particularly here i wonder so the whole appeal of the ndp is they're the alternate you know what do they say liberal tory same old story like they are they are the ones who are supposed to do things differently. So again, is it smart for her to, I think it's smart for her to play Captain Alberta and to follow the playbook. I just wonder about her base, but I guess there is no liberal here. Like, so maybe she is, maybe we now have something more similar to other provinces where there's a binary system, two strong parties. And um, this is the new reality, but you're, you're right. I, I think the other thing that's really changed lately is that premier John Horgan is starting to feel the heat. Even his comment about, well, you know, if refinery of the bitumen is happening in BC, this would be a different conversation. It was like, aha, a crack of light has emerged. So, and again, I I come from a certain side of the spectrum, but as I talk to friends in the lower mainland, in the interior, in the Okanagan, like I don't hear a lot of people who are supportive of what BC is doing. And I think it's starting to crack, particularly when people worry about jobs. And so I wonder what will happen because he's still, his position still hasn't changed. If he wants to be premier, he needs the Greens. But maybe at some point he'll say, like, I think he's looking for a third way. And if it's becoming clear that this is untenable, maybe he'll pull the plug and try to get a better mandate for himself. Yeah, it seems like the dominoes aren't exactly following, falling in BC's favor. You have a, a decision uh, by the court saying, in fact, against the city of Vancouver and one of the First Nations, I think, yep. that basically said, you know, actually you were consulted correctly, according to the law. Yeah, the um, own BC court. Yeah, that. so so it's, it's. I mean, it doesn't say, yes, the pipeline should be built. That's not what the, those decisions mean, but they are... That was their argument. This isn't that the pipeline's bad, it's that the process was yeah. incorrect. And I, I, Dave and I were talking about this the other day, we happened to run into each other, and, and you were you were expressing that you feel like he may be looking for an out. Yeah, I, I get the impression that that I mean, I think I think there was always kind of this: uh, you could either win it in the courts, uh, or basically, or or force Kinder Morgan to back down, which just seems like we're 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 reaching that point where Kinder Morgan's gonna have to have to make that decision, uh, or you can find a way to try to save face and lose, you know, lose by by saving face. And I think that uh, you know, that I mean that that is one of one of the routes that John Horgan could take. He can he could say that yes, we did use all the tools on our toolbox, which is what they, the the yeah. NDP Green Governing Agreement said. And those bastards in Ottawa forced us to do. Those bastards in in, in Alberta forced us forced Dude. this pipeline down our throats, and we 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 used all the all the all the tools in our toolbox. And uh, and then you know then there's political consequences later down the line for 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 everyone. But but so uh, I, Andrew- I think I think that's a way out. Well, what does Andrew Weaver do then? I mean, does, is he sophisticated enough to say, "Okay, I still have this government by the tail"? Yeah, I think so. I think the I think the Greens are are not going to pull the plug on this thing uh, until 
the proportional representation referendum comes in the right. fall. That's what they want. They want then the, they're structurally stronger forever. If if it if the proportional representation referendum passes, but I think that's their big thing. So I think that I think that uh, I think I think I wouldn't be surprised if John Horgan's trying to find a way out, a way to save face uh, that gets him out of this this fight. So I have I guess two other things I just want to touch on. One is I really don't understand what the federal liberals are doing. Trudeau. So even if we take, you know, preferences around a particular policy decision out of it, he came out two months ago very strong, you know, rhetorically very strong. This must be built. It will be built. We're going to do what it takes. And then he's basically done nothing. Like if they were going to just basically step back and let the process play out and not take a side and look to maintain every, like what the liberals do, just basically keep everyone sort of happy. He should have maybe been a little bit softer, but he came out. The finance minister came out. The environment, or sorry, the energy minister came out this morning. I saw the justice minister, um, and she was brutal on CTV because Evan Solomon was giving her the chance to say, "Well, when is legislation going to come out?" And she couldn't. She she had nothing to say. It was clearly she reached the end of her talking points, and it was hard to watch. So I don't understand why you would do all three of these things: unequivocal support, strong rhetorical support. And then no action. Because all he's resulted in is no one being happy. Instead of everyone being kind of happy, I think everyone is unhappy. Because the the opponents of the Liberal Party on the left are going to say, well, you're making all these statements. And then the opponents of the Liberal Party on the right are saying, but you're doing nothing. I don't get it. Do you guys see it differently? You know, I think we'll find out what the federal government's position is coming up this week. Uh, Bill Morneau, federal finance minister, is speaking, I think he's speaking to the Calgary Chamber of Commerce on May 30th. And the deadline is May 31st. Yeah, May 31st. Now, so it's Kinder Morgan's deadline. It's, it's Kinder, not- Yeah, it's Kinder Morgan's imposed deadline basically to pressure the politicians to, yeah. to, to sort things out, make a, make a decision. But you have to think that if, if the federal finance minister is going to be meeting you know the Calgary Chamber of Commerce of all groups. You better have a day a good- before, yeah, a day before the deadline. That you better have, you better have something good to tell them. So the question is, is this going to be? Is it just damage control, uh, or is it good news? Is I mean, I th- I think that 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 Morno's going to come with with some some kind of action. I I I think that uh, that the damage control is way, is way too late at this point, um, and and throwing Morno in there would be would be quite dangerous for the Liberals at this point. But uh, if you didn't have good news, but I, I expect that we'll we'll uh, we'll hear something from from Morno this week about uh, f- action that the federal government is going to take, whether that's legislation forcing it through or whether it's the federal government actually becoming an investor in the project, which is something we've already heard the Alberta government talk about. Um, I mean, that's pretend that's, that's definitely a potential. Do you guys think I'm like, if I'm trying to imagine the conversations that are happening at the prime minister's office, there's part of me that, that feels like probably Justin Trudeau was like, okay, we can really put a dent in Alberta electorally as the federal party by supporting the pipeline. And then like two days later, someone was like, dude, think of how many seats there are in BC though. And then he was like, ah, shit. And then finance was like, and think of all the money we're talking about. Exactly. And and so part of the, the sort of cynic that's trying to figure out the headcanon for this, what actually happened is that Trudeau was really excited about Alberta. He's been here quite a few times. Um, someone told him, don't get too excited about Alberta because Alberta doesn't win its elections. And then he sort of pumped the brakes on pipeline support politically. But but he hasn't, though. You know, the communications has been very strong. Like, mm. the ministers, Morneau and what's the energy or the resource? Jim Carr. Jim Carr is very strong. Like, they haven't done this kind of standoffish, 
they, there was a script where they could have said, we're going to let the courts and the NEB process and all that and whatever happens, happens. But they, they chose not to. Hmm. But, you know, yeah. bridging from what you said, this was also the week or was it last week since our last episode that Jagmeet Singh has decided to jump in the pool with a cannonball from the diving tank. And I know Dave had a post on that. I guess my observation was it's very interesting we have a question in the mailbag later, which we'll get to the local MP, so I'm not going to touch on that now. But, you know, he, Jagmeet Singh, all of a sudden, out of the blue, decided, well, I guess if I have to pick, I'm not picking the Alberta NDP. And he came out very strongly against the Kinder Morgan, explicitly. Which will play well in Quebec and will play well in BC. Yeah, especially if you're considering potentially running in that Surrey by-election. Bur- Burnaby by-election. I'm sorry. Yeah, Burnaby by-election. So, you know, there could be three motivations for this. Is he seeking a personal seat? Is it a cynical vote calculation? Is it his true beliefs? I think the answer is yes. <laughs> and it's fascinating. You know, I, I enjoy tormenting the NDP and reminding them that they are the same party. Membership in one is membership in the other. I am not naive. I realize that ever since the federal convention here, um, with the whole leap manifesto, the Alberta party basically told the rest of the, the federal party anyway to get lost. But this was fascinating. And again, Rachel Notley, I hate to give her credit, but her comments about her federal leader were just so good. Like if she's trying to win over conservatives who will never vote for her no matter what she says, but we like what we like it. She, she achieved that. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine a world where two conservatives at the federal and provincial level, or explicitly arguing with each other. Like, we've had disputes before, but it's never been like that. I guess the only time would be Premier... Well, the... the, the Newfoundland. I, I, I think you'd... Well, Danny Williams. Danny Williams. Yeah, I mean, I think you go back to the constitutional the constitutional uh, debates of the 1980s and early, in early 90s, and I'm sure you had... you, you We could find, find situations where premiers yeah. were arguing with prime ministers, but no, nothing really... Like I mean, constitutional issues are, are something that's fundamentally yeah. different. But this, I, I think, what's what's really interesting about about the the Jagmeet, Jagmeet Singh kind of showing up, you know, late to the party on this uh, on this political issue is what a secondary character he is in this entire discussion. Like he's really he's barely a supporting character in this, and he's he's such a I mean, in in this in this debate, and- it's it it's like he's he's. He said, "Hey, I, I, you know, he showed up to the party and he and he gave his his strong opinion, but then everybody just kind of moved on because he's not even really a an but issue right that's, now." That's that's true of him. That's a microcosm of his time as federal leader. Like I was expecting a lot more. I remember watching the debates and watching him perform and thinking, like, first of all, this is great because he's going to be competing for Trudeau's left flank, but that he's very compelling. He's very charming. Great politician. He had provincial experience. But ever since he's been leader, I've been very underwhelmed with his performance. I think it was a mistake for him not to seek a, a seat in the House. And I think they need to get him there. Because if you watch some of the conflicts happening with his federal caucus, clearly they there's a leadership vacuum or something is not connecting. But I'm, I'm just really surprised. Because, yeah, you're right. On this one, he came out and everyone just sort of shrugged and moved on. And I can't think of many other things he's really taken a position on. And, he, you know, the, the narrative is there. He's a Sikh. He's very, very charming. He had that moment in his leadership where that woman accused him of being part of the Muslim Brotherhood, and it was like a global yeah. moment. It went, it went viral. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, a lot to capitalize on. He's young like Trudeau and Sheer, compelling story, the whole bit. 
um, and he's just done nothing with it. And I guess it's hard to punch through. You know, you've got the of the three federal parties, the NDP has always been sort of the marginalized one. And I mean, I'm sure they're trying. It's not like their staff is sitting around just doing nothing, yeah. but he really hasn't resonated at least here. Yeah, I, I think I think if he does decide to run in the Burnaby South by election, when uh, when or if Kennedy Stewart decides to uh, or resigns uh, to run for mayor of Vancouver, I think he'll be he'll become a bigger player in this debate if this debate is still ongoing, yeah. uh, because he'll physically be in British Columbia and and there'll be a by election and the I have no doubt that the yeah. the narrative and the theme the de- defining theme of the by election will be uh, about well, this pipeline because it is Burnaby. What does Trudeau do? So prime ministers typically stay out of by elections. I think he'd get a pass if he did, but this one's going to be such a microcosm of the Kinder Morgan. And it'll be impossible for Trudeau not to come to the riding. You, you know, Tr- Trudeau has campaigned in every by-election since since he was leader. He even right. came, he came out to Parkdale or Park Parkland Sturgeon yeah. River. He came, he went up to Fort McMurray. He went down to Foothills. You know what else he so, did? So I mean, I, I gotta give him gotta give him credit for that. Is that he actually actually he will actually physically be there and campaign support his candidates, which I think is a yeah. little admirable. They also went out of their way. I was watching on Friday to do a photo op of the prime minister and his wife voting in the provincial election. So it is funny. Is it just he's just so addicted to the limelight he can't let it go? Um, it's interesting because they had to put a footnote in that although he's a resident of Papineau, I think, in Montreal, that's uh-huh, what he used to be called, district, yeah. that he's allowed to vote in the provincial election. It's just it's interesting. It makes you realize prime ministers usually don't get, or at least Prime Minister Harper specifically didn't campaign in by-elections, and certainly not in this one because this is going to be if if Jagme Singh runs, the stakes couldn't be higher for everybody. If he loses, he's done. I mean, he's just he's he's had too too much of a rough year. He doesn't look like he has a strong grasp of caucus. And if he puts his name forward and runs there and doesn't win, so he's going to have to make it all about Kinder Morgan. I know what the conservatives or the BC liberals are going to do. So what is the... And that's another point. The BC liberals are the Trudeau liberals, you know, and the sheer conservatives kind of come together. So there'll be a strong consensus around Kinder Morgan there. It's going to be great for nerds like us. I hope he does run just just for the show. Yeah, no, indeed, and we'll uh, we'll have more if he does run. I just before we end the, the topic, I do want to ask you guys: What do you think is going to happen before May thirty first? Do you think do you think the provincial government with Kinder Morgan and the Feds makes significant headway on this pipeline before the end of this coming week? I think something will happen. It's interesting because BC isn't really even at the table anymore for that conversation. I think the provincial government here must, and the federal government has been pretty vocal. I don't know if they're going to meet the May 31st deadline. I think they might specifically not, just to show that they're not, what is it, following the Ca- Texas. Cow to- cow yeah, to- yeah. But I, it's clear to me that something. Now, what does that mean? Are they going to put up a fund to backstop it or like actually take a, a share? I don't know. What do you think? I, I think that the federal government will will throw its weight behind this pipeline. I think they've they've uh, the, both the feds and the Alberta government have put too much political capital into this to allow it to fail. Uh, that said, I mean the, the, that's not to say that there isn't going to be op, you know strong opposition from opponents in British Columbia because there will be, uh, and there you know there could be political blowback for the Trudeau Liberals in in some areas of British Columbia. But no, I think I think Morneau is going to announce something some some positive news for for pipeline supporters. If on, he's speaking uh, in the Calgary Chamber, yeah, I think so. How could he not? Yeah, I, I had one other thing we haven't talked about, and that is so I don't really understand Bill Twelve. Is there actually a tap somewhere? And where is it? Does the premier get like a red button? And and then the other thing. So m- my wife in particular and lots of us 
do campaigns and Leanne does visuals. I can't think of a greater visual <laughs> in the history of Alberta politics than if they set up a giant tap right on the ledge grounds, like a 40-footer, and had the premier climb up with like a ranch or something. Let's do it. And shut that sucker right off. She's got her she's got her hard hat on, oh, her PPE, it would be great. her steel-toed boots. She looked yeah. like a real, yeah. you know, blue-collar Albertan. Oh, yeah. Man. And it would be shut off. Yeah. It would be like a, on the message event planning document, it'd be like desired visual, desired headline, tap shut off period oh and there could be a big big gauge that like descends to zero after she shuts shuts it off (laughs) i if you're listening uh alberta ndp caucus calm staffers bring us in we got some ideas yeah this one this one's for free yeah this this one actually merits a dog and pony show (laughs) but seriously is there a tap I don't know. I don't know how it works. No, I don't think. Well, well, the, the, the Bill 12 doesn't just cover pipelines. It covers everything. Like so in terms of like, in terms of like preserving, uh, all kind of transport. So that would be truck and, and train as well. Preserving Canada's Economic Prosperity Act. That sounds boring. I want to tap and I want it shut off. <laughs> the, shut, the shut off the tap. And then out. someone should have like a webcam at a gas station in Vancouver. And watch and the gas prices watch go the up. Watch the prices go up. <laughs> and when it gets to three, we'll be like... You know, like that kid in The Simpsons? Ha ha. <laughs> Just play that as a gif over and over and over. No, I mean, it's not It's not bringing us to a good place. Like, no. I find myself looking forward to $3 gas in Vancouver just so I can feel some vengeance, which is not a great... Well, It'll be a well, momentary feeling, and then you'll realize and, this actually hurts all of us. And then the gas prices start going up here. Yeah. And then, and then we realize we've accomplished not much. Right. And, and, you know, one thing we haven't talked about, and we probably don't have time today, is what happens with political relationships and, and all that stuff after this. When this is all over... There's no repairing the Horgan. Doesn't feel Motley, like it. The, I think the Alberta NDP and the rest of its brethren, brothers and sisters, union. what do you union people say? I guess I'm in a union now too, but... Oh, it's uh, brothers, isn't it? Comrades now. I think it's yeah, comrades, comrades now because yeah. it's not gender specific. Good, yeah. That will be broken. I mean, I can't imagine the next federal convention. Um, even if there's... Say Premier Notley rides off into the sunset the next NDP leader campaigns to go back to being like the NDP. Well, does that mean you're back on the Leap Manifesto, Jagmeet Singh side of the... Well, I, th- I think the Leap Manifesto is dead. I think that's... I'd like to bring it up. Okay, well, I, I think it, in terms of the party, it's 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 dead. In terms of conservative attack ads, it's probably... It's going to be in, per- per- in per- per- perpetuity. Um, but yeah, that is an interesting question, is how do they how do they repair this? Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, you know there's still a lot of there's still a lot of things they have in common uh in terms of of what what the parties stand for even you know provincially and federally um but i think it will take some time well and maybe the legacy is that it it the ndp in alberta continue to be decoupled from the federal party for a generation yeah and maybe that's not a bad thing and we've seen that on the conservative side exactly yeah so when the ndp do form government again uh you know in 2024 uh they will be fully separate from their federal party Ever the optimist. We're going to take a quick break and tell you about our sponsor this week, Edmonton Community Foundation. So what do you guys know about uh, Edmonton Community Foundation? Because they've sort of been on my radar for a while. Not, not just because it's a podcast network either. I, I know absolutely nothing about them. Right. I'm, in, I'm in fundraising here locally, so I'm, I'm aware of them. Okay. They're not like a competitor to the University of Alberta at all. They have different, you know, different purposes. Mm-hmm. But I'm aware that these community foundations, not only in Edmonton, but Vancouver and Calgary, help small donors amplify their impact. 
Yeah, and that we're going to talk about that for a moment. Uh, part of their mission is to make strategic investments that enhance the quality of life in Edmonton. And a major part of that is endowment funds. And I know you know a little bit about endowment funds, Ryan. I think that might be an understatement. But can you maybe tell us a little bit about how an endowment fund works exactly? Sure, yeah. So the, the concept is you create a pool of funds, and that is dedicated to being spent each year to have some sort of impact on some goal, but you spend of interest generated. You don't touch the principal so that it's created once and it funds itself forever. So typically a small portion of the fund is paid out each year from interest. Principal grows. And even then most interest earned is usually plowed back in. Hmm. So that purchasing power would be maintained in the long term. So at the University of Alberta, for example, our spending allocation is between 2.8 and 4%. So if you have a $100,000 fund, this year it will generate $4,000 to whatever purpose you've designated. The rest is plowed back in. Okay. So that in 500 years, the relative impact is the same. Okay. So here's what ECF lets you do. You can create endowment funds for anything. They, they've got a, a minimum uh, threshold, I think, of... Well, I mean, they're talking about it on their website. They talk about you can establish a $10,000 endowment fund and you could do that over the period of 10 years to reach that threshold. So I'm thinking we need to come up with some kind of Dave Berta endowment fund. What, what would that look like? What would we fund? We can't fund partisans because <laughs> you'd have Ryan funding the conservatives and Dave funding the rhino party, my run in the rhino party. The, well, obviously the human fund. Yeah. Yeah, something that just helps people. I'm looking it up helps right people, now. helps... Uh... Money for people. <laughs> it would be the theme. Well, and I have to say that Edmonton Community Foundation making an, an endowment available for $10,000 is remarkable mm -hmm. because part of the barriers to setting these things up is the legal fees, the process. You have to actually manage the funds. You have to have... If it's charitable, you have to have like a board and CRA approval and all that stuff. So when they essentially they're offering a white label service. Now, there are rules. They don't just let you set up the human fund <laughs> money for people. Dang. But the uh, the uh, the the Dave Berta beer fund. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what they do is they provide it's like a white label service, all the back office functionality and some governance and the accounting and the, ch and the receding. So it's a great source. And, you know, say the three of us cared about the local food bank, we could um, designate funds each year that would be endowed and go to the local food bank every year. Cool. So, I mean, this is a this is a powerful way that you can direct some of your charitable giving. You can create an endowment fund um, and you can find out more about how the Edmonton Community Foundation can support this by visiting ecfoundation.org. As they say on their website, the power of endowment is within your reach. So, Ryan, Ontarians go to the polls to vote on June 7th. Uh, if the PC party had chosen Caroline Maroney or Christine Elliott as their leader, do you think they'd be 15 points ahead or 20 points ahead right now? That that hurts, Dave. <laughs> I'm actually a big Caroline Mulroney fan. We Leanne and I discovered her, and we know some people working on her local campaign, and she checks all the boxes for me. I'm a bit of an elitist. I'm a bit of a dynasty guy. I, I like the royal family and things like that. Um, a bit of a progressive. You pick a better family though, Ryan. Come on. <laughs> I love Brian Mulroney. If you've ever met him, I mean, you can't not love him. He he's almost Bill Clinton esque in the sense that like he is so amazing with crowds and shaking hands, giving a speech one on one. Have I told you guys the story about my book signing with Brian Mulroney? 
He signed, he your, signed book? your book. <laughs> he did. The, the book you wrote about the your your political fortunes. <laughs> so his memoirs, if they came out, I was living in Ottawa. It was 2006, and we lined up at Chapters on downtown by the Parliament. And you know, the, it's the kind of thing you get like 45 seconds with each person, and we waited. And he kind of looks up, but he was, you know, in a mode. He's like, "What's your name, son?" And I said, "Ryan." And his face lights up. Um, and he wrote in my book, <laughs> "Dear Brian." Best wishes. <laughs> and I was not going to say a word to Prime Minister <laughs> did, Brian Mulroney. Did you almost change your name to Brian? Yeah. I was like, you know what, sir? If you want to call me Brian, it gives me a great story. But so Carolyn Mulroney, I mean, I would have been I would have been really fine with Christine Elliott as well. Um they both were very impressive and poised. Christine Elliott had, you know, fifteen or twenty years of experience on top. So she probably would have been the, the most stable pick and especially since they basically went straight into the campaign. But your point hurts, Dave. And you know, some it's easy to cherry pick. I, I it's not over yet. Um we're gonna get into it I'm sure, but there is still almost a full two weeks. Uh some of the concerns with Ford were very predictable and everyone said them and some of them haven't been. So I think there's a there's a bit of a theme here that both the PCs and the NDP have peaked but well before June 7th. So you're, you're tempting to say peak too soon. It's too soon to say if it was too soon. Yeah. But I was sending out that poll three weeks ago showing they were going to win like 121 seats. And now they've tightened right up. The Ontario poll tracker this morning is exactly 36% to 35.9% NDP PC. <laughs> And then the liberals are down at 21. So it's neck and neck. Now, if you look at the poll tracker, and we can put a link in the show notes, they also do a seat projection based on the efficiency of the vote. And it's not good for the NDP. The PC, the NDP vote is very inefficient. So the seat projection within a band, the middle of the band is still PC 70, NDP 51, liberals like three or something with that sort of distribution. Now, of course, polls are polls and all that boring stuff. You know, it's clear that the momentum is with the NDP right now, and elections are about momentum. But the next two weeks gives a lot of time to run Ray Day attack ads, to start picking on these NDP candidates like the one who ran the terrible meme, things like that. So, I don't know. Um, what do you think? Well, how do you think? we Actually, we did a poll among the two of us, and I predicted peace. I mean, I guess this is obvious. I predicted PC majority. <laughs> what did you predict? I, I predicted an NDP majority, uh, though. I think you're, you know, and I, I think, uh, I think it's, it's within the within the the reach of the NDP if if they're able to keep the keep the momentum going. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, you know, we've two weeks or so, two weeks into I think advanced voting starts like today or starts tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, uh, but we really have two weeks till the next till till election day, uh, and. As we all know, campaigns can be totally unpredictable, and uh, and elections matter, uh, or campaigns matter. So it's it's really hard to figure out, really hard to predict what 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 exactly is going to happen in two weeks if they're able to keep the momentum up. Uh, go, going back back to back to my to my original question to you about uh, about the the PC's position. Uh, I mean, I do think it's interesting that uh, and and worth noting that that Doug Ford really has. Uh, uh, pulled down. I think he's pulled down the the, the PC ticket. Uh, he is a controversial leader. He's not universally well liked. He has a lot of baggage, uh, and I think it's interesting that the PCs spent. I mean, under Patrick Brown, who resigned in disgrace earlier, earlier resigned or was Patrick kicked out. Who? Yeah, I don't know who you're talking. About. Early, earlier did, this year, the, did the, the, all did all PCers retcon his existence? Is that what happened? I know nothing. It went. It went. Uh, it went. John Tory, and then. 
Doug Ford. Yada, or no, yada, yada. there's someone else, someone between John Tory and the other guy that everybody forgot about. <laughs> Hudak, that's who it was. Yeah, Hudak. Um, no anyway, recollection at all. No <laughs> recollection. The, the Tories had spent years trying, you know, a year or two under Patrick Brown trying to rebrand themselves as more moderate, as more centrist, as more yeah. forward thinking. Uh, they had a huge rebrand. They had adopted new policies, new platform. Uh, and for most of that time, they seemed to be 15 or 20 points ahead yeah. of the liberals. Yeah. You know, Kathleen Wynne's liberals who, who, who are extremely unpopular at the moment and, and continue, continue to be yeah. extremely unpopular. Uh, but since the, the PC leadership imploded earlier this year, uh, they brought Doug Ford in, 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 in a last minute leadership race and things have really tightened. And I, and I can't help but think that had things not imploded and thing, you know, gone has, as they did, that earlier this year that the PCs would be in a comfortable majority majority yeah. territory right now. But I think that, that, you know, the, the unpopularity of the liberals, the unpopularity of Doug Ford uh, has really helped the NDP who've come out with, I think a pretty, pretty reasonable, you know, middle of the road, progressive platform. Yeah. Andrea Horvath, who's been around, I think this is her third election as the NDP leader. She's likable. Uh, she's well-spoken. Yeah. Uh, and I think she's, she's presenting really well and it's, reflecting in the polls is, is uh, I mean, Ontarians seem to want change yeah. and Doug Ford might not be the change that everybody was looking for. So yeah. Andrea Horvath looks, looks pretty good. It's starting to feel like a change that you can trust almost similar to 2015 here. Yeah, exactly. Where yeah. people may have concerns with the NDP, but they know the leader. She's yeah. been around for a few cycles. They know they're not voting for the other two guys. Yeah. So yeah, it's starting to feel that way. But you know, the other thing I'll say is Ford actually had a very unique appeal it was just a totally different strategy. So you talked about the Brown Party was modernizing, broadening out, looking to be more progressive, appeal to women, and all that was true. And I think Elliot or Mulroney could have slotted in mm -hmm. and run that playbook. The Ford playbook was this really interesting appeal to working class people and new Canadians. I mean, we all underestimate, but the Ford in certain new community or new Canadian communities like around Etobicoke and around around Scarborough, they're wildly popular. So if Ford had had a year or you know four years, he could have built up to a whole other game changing strategy. But he didn't. He was the wrong piece to to slot in to finish this playbook. So they basically didn't have a playbook. It's just been all Doug Ford. You know he's running this kind of front runner campaign where he's just doing rallies and message visual events, but he doesn't have a platform. And so a lot of the people who are open for change may not be able to stomach Ford and because he's a known quantity. Yeah. And so they have opinions on him already, whereas Mulroney was not a known quantity. And so who knows? But, you know, it is not totally over yet. Yeah. I, I would also make a couple observations that, if, you know, if we're going into a minority, um, which is possible... I think that there's three different scenarios. I think an NDP minority would be more stable than a PC minority because the Liberal Party is going to go into a whole, you know, finding, finding themselves. Yeah, there are three totally. surviving MPPs. They're, they're like. going to go backpacking in Thailand <laughs> yeah. and like discover themselves. Do the soul searching thing. So in the meantime, if it's the NDP, they'll be fine to let them govern. You know, they, they'll they'll make a few statements, but really they won't fight it. But they cannot be seen to allow Doug Ford to be premier at, in any scenario. So they will have to vote against budgets. They'll have to vote against. So I think a Ford minority is inherently less stable because both parties have to oppose him because mm -hmm. the message adds, because they're still going to be competing with each other. The other thing I'll say is that even though our system does allow for a party without a plurality to form a minority, 
and I'm a Westminster purist. I wish we would go back to some of the old ways of doing things. I don't think it would work in 2018. So if the NDP come in with slightly less seats, but the liberal state will give them two budgets, I think the conservatives would, I don't think it would be viable. Like I think in today's media um, market and media way of going about things, it would be. But isn't that what happened in British Columbia? It'd be seen as illegitimate. I don't know. Did they govern with fewer seats? Well, I think the I think the NDP had got less votes than the than the Liberals, and I think they have less. I think well, they only have more seats because they have support from the Greens. What is the seat count? Oh, but that was down to like one. It was down to like one. So yeah. You're, so you're talking about like if the Liberals have ten seats and the NDP have like yeah, I just however think, many. I think they could do it. It reminds okay. me of the 08 coalition. They could do it, but whenever it fell, the PC retribution campaign like i think the voters because i don't think voters followed enough to to care about that you aren't actually electing a leader you're electing your local rep and i know that some of the people who are the most combative on the harper years are running the ford campaign so i think if it's an ndp minority they'll get two or three years i think if it's a pc minority it'll be a goat rodeo which is my new favorite phrase. <laughs> yeah, that's i can't believe it's taking us that long to say it yeah and nobody can form government with a like without a plurality. I just don't think the lieutenant governor would. So I just don't think the LG would let them. Mm -hmm. I guess the the big question for me is, you know, you talk about uh, Ford Nation having the support of new Canadians and and, uh, immigrant populations, that sort of thing. Do they have the capability and the numbers to get out the vote so that those people show up? He's he's never needed it. So no. I mean, the Ford... There's no vehicle for it, right? There's no engine for it. It's not what they're about. Yeah. They just do these giant rallies and people come out like the fords are a force in that part of the province but it's like undirected political energy yeah it is it's like a powerful thing you tap into and you it works but it's not like overly database data centered so so it's more of a mafia than a uh than a political uh political party if this were game of thrones they would go see like a mage and get a focusing crystal so they could focus all that political energy in the right direction and I don't know, to end the metaphor, kill Cersei Lannister. <laughs> that, That's no, the next season. Yeah, no spoilers. <laughs> no spoiler alert. Okay, Hopefully just... no one dies. <laughs> and now it's time for our regular segment, So You Want to Be a Candidate. Take it away, Ryan. Okay, so I've talked in the past to set this up about the three main jobs that a candidate has. And we've talked about voters, dollars, and now for the third one, which is volunteers. So these are the three things that candidates should focus on. They're the things that they should be spending their time on. So volunteers. Uh, As a quick recall, if you remember, campaigns at the nomination level are essentially four steps. So it's building a list. It's persuading people to support you and identifying that list. And then getting out the vote on nomination day. Volunteers can help you with all of those steps. In fact, without a strong volunteer team, you're going to have a hard time winning. You need more people. Probably there will be several candidates. You know, these things are competitive. You're going to need all the help you can get. So what kind of specific things can volunteers do to help? And again, I'm using a provincial nomination as kind of the parameters of this, Um, but it'll change a little bit, but the principles are there. So on the categories of what volunteers can help you do, I would say these are the main ones. So under membership sales, which again, to build that list of people who can actually vote for you on nomination day, they have to be party members, whether it's NDP or Green or Rhinoceros Party or whatever. So if you have a volunteer and they came out with you, 
Probably the most effective way to sell memberships is by going to the door and meeting people face to face and asking them to help. So a volunteer, even if they're terrified of doing it, they can still help you come, hold the paper, keep the forms, go to a door and knock on it and wave you over if someone answers. Um, you know, even just having someone with you. I don't run. I hate jogging, but I understand when you jog with someone, it's more fun. So you're not all by yourself. So a volunteer out with you door knocking is actually a lot of help. The other ways that volunteers can help you with membership sales are by making introductions. So saying, you know, my friend is running and I'd like to introduce you to her. Would you meet her? Hosting coffee parties. This is one of the best. Getting 10, 15, 20 of your friends and family together. Letting a candidate come and introduce themselves to all those people at once in your home. You're lending them some credibility and you're actually helping make the sign-out process easier. You can do phone banking. It's You know, you can phone people. You can phone previous members or potential members and sometimes it's fun to get a phone bank organized you have some pizza everybody brings their cell phones in this in this age minutes are free now so people don't mind using their cell phones and there's a way to block the number if they don't want it to be shown and then of course the back end part of membership sales can be pretty a pretty big burden you know processing the forms making a photocopy sending it into the party whatever each party has a different process but that stuff can really weigh you down Candidates should absolutely not be doing that during daylight hours, so they find themselves usually doing that at night. But if you can hand a stack of today's membership sales to your friend and let her do it, all the better. The other big categories that a volunteer can help with at a nomination is so outreach and cultivation. So between introductions and membership, you still have to keep them, keep them fresh, the touch points. So they could do a newsletter kind of thing. They could run your email list or your website. You could have a volunteer sending out some social media updates from the campaign or from the candidate and running the database behind the scenes for all this voter tracking. You want to make sure, we talked about it previously, that voters hear, for, voters hear from you a couple times and that you're being systematic about it. They can help with fundraising. Um, volunteers can make direct asks, especially in certain communities or situations like where a volunteer might have a wealthy family member or they may know some business owners or whatever the case may be. They can certainly help with the back office side. So processing donations, creating receipts, doing the thank yous. So you don't want to be thanking on behalf of the candidate because the relationship should be the candidate and the voter or the donor. But they can certainly do the envelope addressing, have a system. There's just general organizing as well. So you want to have a schedule for what the candidate is doing, coffee parties, parades, public events they have to attend, door knocking, building in break days. So a volunteer that's trusted can do that. And then the other thing is volunteers can help manage other volunteers. So the relationship should be between each candidate and the can and the volunteer. So take Doug Schweitzer. He's running a dynamite nomination campaign right now. And I, I don't have any insider information, but I would imagine when a new volunteer comes in, Doug Schweitzer is the one who asks, hey, would you help me? And they're like, oh, wow, yeah, this is great. Doug wants me to help him, of course. And then I would imagine Doug has people who come in and say, okay, here's the schedule. Can you tell us when to do it? So the connection is made with the candidate and then volunteers help. To wrap up this segment and get to the questions, there are generally, in my experience, two sources of volunteers. Who are these people? How do you find them? And I've touched on this before. In my opinion, there are, first of all, friends and family. And they're defined by people who care about you and not necessarily about politics or the issues. But it's great if they do. 
So this is friends and family, cousins, uncles, aunts. Similar to on the fundraising side, these are the first asks because they're easy because they care about you, Adam Rosenhart, candidate for the rhinoceros party. That stuff doesn't matter. They want to support you. The other one is, and these people exist and there's a lot of them, political people who love the process and are kind of looking for a candidate or a campaign to get involved with. So people who are already engaged, already involved, it's best to seek them both. It is best. I mean, you want both. You want as many as you can. You can't do it purely with a bunch of people who love you but don't know anything about the process. But you also need some people who love you, who aren't just pure, you know, shopping around. So the best way to find them, if you're new out there and you want to run, is, and of course this is that second category of people, is to be involved. To show up, to go to events, to go to uh, constituency association meetings. The other best way to do it is to volunteer on other campaigns. I remember Matt Jenneru, I met him because he was door knocking on my campaign in 2011. It, it totally is how this works. Everyone, just about every politician has been a volunteer for someone else. Because you get experience, you meet people. You get to know them, you make friends with them and relationships. And from then, you just ask. I know this is going to be a hard question to answer. Um, because we're, we've tended to sort of talk about this pre-nomination. So let's talk about a pre-nomination. Okay. From your perspective, Ryan, and I know every constituency is different, what's an optimal amount of volunteers? There is a diminishing return at some point, but I don't know if I've ever seen it because there are brute force tasks that you can have volunteers do. You don't need a large amount of people doing each job for sure, but some of them scale. So for example, membership sales and door knocking. There are, how many households in a provincial riding, Dave? I don't know about households, but I think there are, I think the, the average number of residents is 43,000. Right. So that's a big number of people. So call it 20,000 houses. Yeah. No candidate, especially in a short campaign, is going to get to 20,000 houses. And the best way to get people involved in the process is to just show up and ask. So what I would do is I would scale there um, I would scale on outreach to potential supporters. And what else would scale? I mean, certainly things like literature, but that's kind of more in the next step. Lit drops. And signs and stuff like signs. that. Signs. Yeah, you definitely don't need 20 schedulers and 20 <laughs> of that stuff. But, you know, the thing about campaigns is there's not a lot of strategery. There's just mostly work, yeah. right? Strategery being, I think, one of our... The presidents of the last decade said that. I shouldn't make fun because I actually love them. But, you know, there just isn't a lot. Like, people think that there's a lot of strategy and, and like, graphs and stuff, and there isn't. It's there, like, there, there's messaging strategy, but is it when it comes to deploying resources, it's you, you, you fill a need. And really. even then, at the nomination, yeah. I mean, this is what makes nominations tough, is you basically all agree. Mm. Now, sometimes it's very particularly divisive, and there is something you disagree on. But most of the time, it's about who can beat the other team. So, yeah, there is more strategy in, in the general, for sure. But at the nomination, if you have too many volunteers, make a second door-knocking team and send them out. And look for proxies who can be there on behalf of the candidate who make the most sense. So a partner, a spouse, a parent, a best friend, someone that yeah. can speak. But if you don't have it, don't worry about it. Because if you go out and your hit rate is two memberships per hour, and with the candidate, she's doing five memberships per hour. That's still seven memberships per hour. It's yeah, still yeah. good. Yeah. Maybe this doesn't factor so much in nominations, but what are some of the ways that you've seen campaigns have 
successfully inspired volunteers? Like, what do you do to keep them engaged if they're not really wonky like some of us, um, but they're but they are curious about politics? I I it'll seem cliche, but I think it's hard work. So the model I have in my mind is Laurie Holland in the 04 campaign and the 06 campaign. He became legendary. And some of it, he did work his tail off. Absolutely. But I even think it becomes a self-reinforcing myth is the wrong word. I don't mean the negative connotation, but this like mythical figure. And everyone would tell you, Lori Hahn runs, literally runs, and never stops working. And how could you not get out there and help him? So He was a campaign machine. But it inspired everybody else because it's like, well, Lori's working this hard. What, you know, how could I not? So if you want to keep your, no one will ever care as much as the candidate because it's no, it's rarely, it doesn't affect their life quite as much. Mm -hmm. So the candidate has to set the tone for work, for friendliness, for outreach. The candidate can never say, let's dog it this time or let's go in early, you know, and that was something I tried to be very cautious of too. Like at the end of the day, these couple hundred people are working so that I can have a cool job, you know, not really, but I have to keep that in mind. I'm the one with the most to gain, so I better be the one leading on effort. And some of the failed campaigns and politicians around the city who are no longer politicians, that's the kind of thing you hear. That they, by the end, they weren't really working that hard. And so why would a volunteer work that hard? Yeah, I just have a question in terms of campaigns, nomination campaigns where there are that that are hotly contested and there might be tension between the candidates and you know there might be a lot of people involved and a lot of passion and what happens when the dust settles? How do you what would your tip be for for a candidate who wins a nomination and say there are two or three or four or five or, or maybe even six other candidates running and there are lots of volunteers involved in the other campaigns and you want to bring you you see that there's talent in, in the other campaigns, you want to bring them over but there's potentially hard feelings how, how do you, how would you do that? Or, or did, did you do that when you did, I don't know, I can't remember if when you ran for um, the CPC nomination in Strathcona, it was a contested race. Yeah. Did, did your campaign do anything to bring volunteers from the other campaigns or did they just come over because it was the same party? It's tough. You know, it, it's really tough because it's so personal. So if I'm being really transparent, I have been part of it in both directions and I've been part of it successfully and unsuccessfully so i have withdrawn after losing um, for a variety of reasons the, the most is just it's tough when you're not gonna get to do what you work so hard to get to do and rather than be a problem and rather than be a focal point for tension i kind of just backed away um which maybe was not the biggest move for me. You know, I, I probably should have just continued to show up and be a soldier, but I guess I'm only human too. Um, when I won my nomination, we had both experiences there too. So I I worked pretty hard at it. Now, in my, my Strathcona nomination, there was three of us. One of the opponents really wasn't super involved in Strathcona until that nomination, so she kind of just went back to her other riding, and it was it was fine. Um, you know, she moved on and we were okay with that. The other one, it was great. She stuck around. She worked for us for almost until the election. You know, it was, but it was definitely something that as a candidate, I, I tried hard to make sure she felt comfortable and welcome. And I took the lead with outreach and making sure she knew we wanted her because yeah, they bring a whole team. Um, obviously they were valuable 
members of the of the board because they almost won the nomination or they ran. So I really think it becomes the, like I think the onus is on the winner because they won. <laughs> so they it's you know they're the one that can reach out uh, and should reach out. So, but I've seen it both ways and I've, you know, I am not afraid to admit I've been part of it successfully and unsuccessfully too. Guys, I don't know if you know this, but Canada Post is still a thing and we get letters. Actual letters in no, the mail? No, I was lying. Canada Post is not a thing and we get most of our questions on Twitter. So let's open the mailbag. Uh, this first question is from David, whose unfortunate name on Twitter is Swill Bucket Stick. His question is, Alberta growing deficit in relationship to Alberta's low debt to GDP ratio. What does it all mean, Dave? And he had a second part of his question. Are certain partisan policy wonks on the podcast concerned when over half of their party delegates support socially conservative extremist policy? We answered that second question on the last show. So I'm going to go to you, Dave. Uh, Alberta growing deficit in relationship to Alberta's low debt to GDP ratio. What does it all mean? Okay, so economists like to talk about something called the debt-to-GDP ratio. And what that is, is it's a ratio that indicates an economy that produces and sells goods and services sufficient to pay back debts without incurring further debt. So in a way, it's saying that the economy, well, the economy is producing is producing goods and, and services, producing money. Uh, and as long as you keep the government debt levels to a certain point, it evens out it's kind of hard to explain i find it's something that you hear a lot about you hear the alberta government talk about the the ndp government talk about it a lot joe cc talk about debt to gdp ratio uh and deficit to gdp ratio um econ actual economists uh like trevor toom articulate it way better than me uh on mostly or sometimes using graphs on on twitter um but i will refer to a blog that I will link to uh, link to when we post this podcast from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives that kind of outlines kind of the four or five of the kind of kind of key things to think about from Alberta's last budget and their third point was Alberta has by far the lowest debt to GDP ratio of any province and they linked to a graph that was posted by Trevor Toom that shows Alberta has 6.5% of it, the, the debt is 6.5% share of the GDP uh, compared to other provinces, whereas the next closest province is British Columbia with 15.2%. So this is essentially an argument that economists use um, to show that basically to balance... Uh, um, see, I'm even having a hard time explaining it because it's, it's actually as hard to explain. Uh, debt bad. Well, de debt debt's bad. You know, I think most economists would say debt is bad, but it's not as bad if your economy is doing really well, which right. is the case we have in Alberta. So despite the recession, our economy is doing pretty well. We're generating a lot of goods and services. We're generating a lot of money. Um, therefore, the debt that we do have, which is, you know, small compared to some other provinces like Quebec, uh, is, you know, isn't as bad as it could be. So D Dave's answer is no worries. Ryan, what's yours? So I was just talking to... Uh, Leanne and we had maybe 20 conservatives over last night and had a fire pit and we were talking about this it's actually a real challenge to conservatives moving forward millennials who used to be like the kids in their first job millennials now are 30 and have children and millennials don't care about debt we just don't 
It's because we all have it. Yeah. We see this lifestyle um, where a big a big mortgage and a, a car payment and credit card debt is just not a big deal. And in the last federal election, the Trudeau liberals actually broke like a 20-year sort of agreement that debt is bad and deficit is bad. And he was explicit. Now, he said it would be a small deficit and it balloon and all that but fundamentally you had the ndp and the conservative party campaign saying like debt is bad even the ndp which give me a break but they had to say it because that was the consensus and trudeau was like no we're gonna run a deficit and he was rewarded and i think that has changed the game um and you know this is the challenge for conservatives moving forward is that we need to remake that case like Preston manning and paul martin in the politics of the 90s had established what the pain of a large GDP to debt or a, a bad GDP to debt ratio would be. Today we just don't really feel that, and so when the NDP don't actually balance the books, they don't pay the kind of pain that conservatives wish they did. So I don't think, I don't think right now it's as big of an issue for the NDP as I feel as I wish it was, because how do you? I mean, I guess people see the lifestyle, they see the infrastructure they see all the things that we need and you know that you're going to experience it in your lifetime and someone else is going to pay for it in some abstract distant future and it's hard to make the case that well actually debt servicing is now what the third or fourth largest item even in our provincial budget today but people don't care no, I, 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 but i think there's a cost to i mean it's we could you know balance the budget tomorrow and 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 but but there's a huge cost to that as well is i mean right now we you know the the province is not raking in as much revenue as it once did mostly due to oil and gas uh prices but our population is still growing we're in the midst of a baby boom right now so we need to build those schools we need to build those hospitals and there's a cost if there's a cost down the road if we don't build it number one it'll be more expensive later down the road when we need to build it if the economy does pick up and inflation increases uh and two uh there'll be a cost if we if, the, if those services and those that infrastructure simply doesn't exist and i think that was one of the the outcomes of the 1990s and the klein era and the focus on too strong a focus on on deficit reduction and debt reduction in kind of a harmful way where hospitals were blown up, where thousands of people were laid off, where schools just weren't built, and our population is growing, and and we felt that we we saw the result of that in terms of large classrooms and overcrowded hospitals, and and there wasn't really I think the last time debt and deficits were were a huge issue there wasn't really any balance it was just such a singular focus on debt reduction at the cost of everything else and yeah. and I think that a lot of I mean you know we're political people so we're kind of the exception. Uh, but I think a lot of people, a lot of millennials who grew up during that time saw, you know, and they may, may not have put two and two together just, you know, to make the, to make the sophisticated argument that deficit spending is a good thing. But, yeah. but I think that there was a, a consequence that people actually experienced growing up. Well, and that's, that's going to be our challenge in the next few election cycles as conservatives is saying, yes, you need this stuff, but here is why you need to be more restrained with spending, right? Like this is why we have political parties. So if we all agreed on this, we wouldn't really need a political system. So I think this is the, the heart of the next few campaigns. There's always events and particular policies and particular pipelines. But this core worldview of like, is debt good or is debt okay, is a pretty important dividing line. 
Our next question is from Mountain Ted. Uh, what do you think of how federal or provincial NDP MPs and MLAs should deal with uh, Jagmeet Singh's public anti-pipeline stance? I'm going to go to you on this one first, Ryan. So is anyone aware that I lost an election in 2011 to the NDP and Linda Duncan? Is this a surprise? I think only Dave and I and Leanne know that, probably. So, yeah, I, I vaguely remember. So I'm just going to put it on the table because it's always what happens when i talk about the federal ndp in particular miss duncan people remind me hey didn't you lose to her yes <laughs> yes i lost to her let's let's get that out of the way okay now take me out of it even take her out of it this makes me lose my mind just as a guy who's worked for multiple political parties has worked for multiple politicians the idea that a federal party leader and a provincial party leader who is also the premier disagree, not just a little bit, disagree like vehemently. And the local federal MP who shares a riding and everyone knows is very close with the premier. They're both elected in a place called Edmonton Strathcona. She's able to somehow fly under the radar where no one cares that she isn't taking a position. And I said this on social media and I know it kind of makes you look whiny when you say you're treating me unfairly. But I guarantee you, if it was a, a federal conservative leader, so Matt Jenneru, I've mentioned him today already, I'll mention him again. If Andrew Scheer and Jason Kenney were at each other's throats on possibly the biggest political issue in politics today, and everyone suspected that Matt Jenneru agreed with his federal leader, not the local premier, People would not give him a pass. He would have to take a side. Graham Thompson would go to his office, literally, and camp out and wait for him to come. And I know this because he did it to me as a candidate. He wouldn't <laughs> say like, oh, well, it's not a story. He would wait. He'd say, well, when is the MP coming back? Because I will sit here and wait. You, you're and definitely hauling around some Graham Thompson baggage. I am so annoyed. <laughs> should have him on the podcast. That Linda gets away with this. So even if you take Linda out of it and certainly take me out and Jagmeet Singh and Premier Nolly, just make it generic. No other politician would get away with squirreling under this issue. Do you think this is a function of of a media that has been decimated? No, because Paul Simons and David Staples and all the other columnists here go hard at every other politician still. None of them have been, what's the term when you, um, none of their tail feathers have been trimmed on any other issue. They fight, sure, there are clearly resource issues. But when they want to make a point or get a politician to answer a question, they find a way. Mm -hmm. No one cares about... Now, I think it's because we all know, basically, of course, Linda opposes pipelines. Big surprise. But she represents like 100,000 people in Edmonton, Strathcona. And I bet a, I know for a fact a high percentage of them are union tradespeople. Certainly, their jobs depend on this. this is, there's a reason why Rachel Notley, even if she's a late convert, is so emotional and forceful about this. I would love to be at the dinner party when Lou and Rachel and Linda get together and they cook some tofu on the barbecue <laughs> and they chat about this because it... Oh, open up a bag of Miss Vicky's yeah, jalapeno Ms. chips. And, yeah, and the premier takes down a whole bag of Miss Vicky's chips. <laughs> I want to be at this barbecue. This, like, obviously, I'm the definition of biased on this, but I just... I 
I can't believe it. I mean, yeah, Linda Duncan, she's uh, she's been a total ghost on this issue. Um, I mean, she's kind of I think she's kind of a ghost in Edmonton. She's not really a huge visible figure here, um, especially since we have an, a provincial NDP government here. Uh, I, I think it's pretty inconsequential what Linda Duncan thinks about the pipeline. I think she's kind of a minor player at this point. Um, she represents 100 percent of the federal caucus in Alberta. Well, yeah, but she's one MP. I've spent the last eight years trying not to worry about Linda Duncan too much, so I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole here. No, Linda Duncan is a she's a she's a lifetime committed environmentalist. I'm sure she has very strong feelings about the pipeline. I would not be surprised to learn that she's if she if she was opposed to it, wouldn't surprise me. Uh, it would be an unpopular position to for an Alberta politician, which is probably why she's totally quiet on the issue and and hasn't shown her, hasn't shown sure. her face around on it's this rational. issue. And I, and I'm sure they don't talk about pipelines at the uh, NDP barbecue with uh, with their tofu and how. Jalapeno chips and IPA. I think tofurkey it was. and tofu burgers and and wh- whatever the the latest micro brew craft is, beer is de rigueur in in Alberta. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the Joe CC Pale Ale. Well, you managed, dear dear reader, Mountain Ted. You've managed to generate a rant for me here today. Well so. done, mission accomplished. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producer, Adam Rosenhart, for helping us to put this episode together. And a huge thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, for supporting this show. Now, um, we talked about an Alberta Podcast Network show last time. Do you guys know Chris Chang-Yen Phillips? I do. I know that Dave does. So this guy was Edmonton's historian Historian laureate. And while he was the historian laureate, he created this really cool Edmonton history podcast called Let's Find Out. And the way it works is basically his listeners will come up with a question. Um, it could be like, I, re- I remember, I, there was one episode where this guy was like, I have a memory of the old bay downtown having a Christmas train on it. I can't find any any evidence of it. Help me find out if that's the case. And they did a whole show on it. And it was so interesting. It's so cool. No one else is doing this kind of podcast in the city. Like a Mandela effect, but of Edmonton history. Yeah. The, yeah. the Bernstein Bears of... Uh, which is still which, a, clo- a global conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, uh, Chris's, Chris's podcast is great. Uh, let's find out. I was actually on it. Uh, oh, yeah. Once. Yeah, I was on his live. They have, and he did the live show. And we talked about uh, we talked about history and, and uh, I talked about politics. I, talked, I actually talked a lot about the social credit. I was going to say, politics. sounds like a chance to talk about social credit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, which one day I'm going to talk, uh, talk a little bit a lot more on this podcast about all the, all the weird and wild stuff that happened uh, when Bill Aberhart, Bible Bill Aberhart was premier. So we'll, we'll do that when there's no election coming up. Yeah, exactly. In any case, you should listen to Chris's history podcast. Let's find out. It's super cool. And I'm always surprised you know, by a topic they may, that might seem not in your wheelhouse or mundane, it's always worth a listen. Visit albertapodcastnetwork.com for Let's Find Out and all the other Alberta Podcast Network shows. Now, and by the time you hear this, there are only a few more days to enter our review contest. So if you leave us a rating and review from between right now and May 31st, so our deadline is the same as Kinder Morgan's. I just want to point that out. Big day. You'll be entered into a draw for fabulous prizes, including a copy of Thurston Clark's The Last Campaign. And uh, for those of you who left a review before we started doing this contest, we'll grandfather you in. But there is one trick. If you leave or have left us a review, you need to email podcast at daveberta.ca with a screenshot of your uh, review so we know who the heck you are. Awesome. 
You can also send us your feedback or ask any questions you have for our next episode. You can get us on Twitter at at DaveBerta on the DaveBerta Facebook page, or you can email us again at podcast at DaveBerta.ca. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.